is the Modern Rubbish Podcast with your hosts, Wyatt Koish and David Paha. In this episode, Noroe, The Curse. Enjoy! Well, we've awkwardly broken off any conversation that we were having before we started recording. <laughs> um, we're doing another guest episode this week, uh, and we've got our good friend Casey Anderson uh, with us to talk about the 2005 uh, Japanese found footage mockumentary, whatever film, Noroe the Curse. Uh, it's a, a favorite of mine. This was the third time I've seen it. But uh, Casey, would you like to introduce yourself or in any further way than I've just done? Uh, yeah, my name is Casey. I've known, let's see, I've known both of you for more than 10 years now. Uh, also, I had never watched this movie, so uh, nor was I familiar with it. So, I was was pleased to have a reason to uh, change that. What about you, Dave? Had you seen this before? I saw it once before. Yeah, like a couple of years ago. I'm wondering if it was the same time because so I saw this movie first, like probably in the first week of the pandemic, like oh. the first week of of like lockdown and it was just in my YouTube recommendations because it was the whole thing used to be on YouTube and it was just like you know I was I don't know what I was watching but clearly something spooky ish uh, and it was like Noroe the curse and I was like okay I'll watch this and then I noticed that like five other movies by this director were also in on YouTube, so I watched. I like binged all of those, and I noticed right around that time that our friend James messaged me and was like, "Dude, have you seen this movie, Norway?" <laughs> so I'm wondering if something happened in like March 2020 I th- that this movie made it into all of our. Yeah, you know, it might have you know. been James who recommended it to me too. Um, I can't remember how I heard of it, and then I rented it on Shutter, or I just streamed it. Yeah, which is where it is now, I guess. Yeah, um, but I've I've since gotten rid of Shutter. <laughs> no offense, Shutter. I know I I did too. <laughs> did <you? Yeah. laughs> I was just recommending it to someone the other day, and then I I neglected to mention that I stopped I stopped paying for it. So <laughs> not the greatest recommendation. This is a movie Norway the Curse. It's by a director named Koji Shiraishi, who has made. A bunch of these sort of found footage, uh, super low budget. They seem like they were probably released, uh, you know, like direct to tape, sort of like a lot of Takashi Miike movies were. Mm. Um, they're just just fucking fantastic. <laughs> found footage is is such a rough genre a lot of the time, and this, these just knock it out of the park. But anyway, so Norway is uh, presented as the bits of an unfinished documentary by uh, a fictional paranormal documentarian named Kobayashi who died in a horrible fire. And this is what's left of the project he was working on before he died. And the gist of it is that he, you know, now that I'm thinking about this, this is an incredibly difficult movie to summarize. <laughs> it's it's weird, right? I had, uh, I mean, honestly, I had, I had to kind of backtrack a bunch because I'd be like really engrossed in it and then there'd be like this weird shift and I'd be like, wait, what am I even watching right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, 
basically Kobayashi is, you know, if you imagine any number of paranormal TV show types you've seen, he's he's kind of in that zone and he's he's researching psychic phenomena. He's researching He's like Mulder. <laughs> he's a bit like a sort of I I actually have no idea how to concisely summarize this movie. Um yeah, so it's he gets like he gets kind of caught up in this this sort of trail of clues that has this these weird connections to each other. Yeah, it's like he starts by he's he's researching sort of uh psychic children and then that leads him to some stuff about pigeons and that leads him to a town with a history a dark history of like folk magic practices and a demon called Kagutaba who went in a, a ritual to summon him that went horribly wrong there's also like a tinfoil hat conspiracy guy <laughs> like literally covered in tinfoil yeah. <laughs> um Mr. Horry, who is the best. Who, when he first appears, is on a game show kind of thing. It's like a variety show or something where they have this actress who had this weird paranormal experience and then uh, Kobayashi, right? And then he comes on stage and he clearly, he's like, clearly not a healthy dude to have on stage <laughs> with you, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. They didn't like background check this this dude at all, and they're like, "No, <laughs> we're gonna get him on. Come on, you know." And then he immediately yeah. rushes the actress and like starts screaming and stuff because he has some psychic sensitivity <laughs> or break with her, you know, or something. Yeah, and that's I mean that's an interesting part because that that um, that actress is Marika Matsumoto who is a real Japanese. Oh, really? That is the actress, that is the name of the actress in this movie and she is playing a fictionalized version of herself. Nice. And the same thing with uh, Maria Takagi who's does the the sort of film within a film segment where they on a different TV show go to find Mr. Hori as like, oh, he's this wacky psychic guy. Yeah. That's also a real actress. Oh, okay. So the movie yeah. sort of blurs these lines of, you know, you're getting people that the Japanese audience at the time would have been familiar with. Mm. Uh, seeing on talk shows, panel shows, reality documentary type things, and putting them in this context where, you know, you're, you're like, wait, so she's, is this real? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, doesn't quite have that, if, you know, I had to look that up. Doesn't quite have that effect, you know. For us. For us, yeah. but that. But the, I, those, those were cool. I, and, uh, it was like very MTV to me. There was a lot of MTV stuff, <laughs> Japanese MTV, whatever that may be. Yeah, it does feel. I mean, there's parts of this that do. I've just given up on trying to summarize this. There's no way. <laughs> there's no way we can accurately do this. Um, as with all these things, just just go watch it. It's even though it's not on YouTube anymore, it's well worth your time and. Maybe by the end of this, we will have covered things to the point where you can piece together what was going on. But, um, you know, that's a little like the experience of the movie itself. So we're doing kind of a, a you know, form and content thing here. It's it's meta. It's, you know, it's it's not just that we're unprepared for this episode. It's, <laughs> um, it's intentional. We were prepared, but then the movie itself blew all that out of the water. 
<laughs> well, it's weird, right? Because it's like at the beginning, it it seems like it's like a weird compilation, but then there's like the middle chunk of it where it actually feels like you're watching an episode of something, mm. and then that part ends, and then you know it keeps going, of course, and so you know I do I do feel like the the sense of time is really kind of disorienting with mm. it. I mean, I think that that's if I if I go back to my own <clears throat> like experience of watching this, like early early pandemic lockdown mode finding it on youtube and just kind of taking a chance on it yeah there is that that sense of what exactly am i watching you know is this this seems to be a a fictional movie this seems to be a horror movie and not an actual compilation of excerpts from real japanese tv shows telling some kind of real world you know story but that i think that's always kind of the goal of a found footage movie is to make you you know, question the dream is to make you actually question: Is this real? You know, is this happening? Have I stumbled upon something that some some great secret here, some hidden thing? And that's very very difficult to pull off. Uh, but this came pretty damn close, at least in my at least on that first watching for me. Yeah, fun. because of that disjointed quality. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like found footage movies usually have that upward, like rising trajectory until it just cuts off with like some dramatic you know like uh the classic you know Blair Witch vibe where it's all or any of the paranormal activity movies yeah it's all like rising action because like creepy stuff starts building up and building up until like it's just some you know fantastic ending that cuts off you know um and this movie didn't really have that they kind of had the like it kind of had it's, it's a slow burn movie. It's a slow. It's like and it moves through in this weird pacing of time, um, but it had the more of a sense of like mystery, kind of putting clues together, following things. Um, as this paranormal investigator, you know, keeps uncovering more and more like little things, and then going and and like oh I'll follow that lead. I'll follow that lead. You know so. It was more of that because because his inroad into it is like you were saying earlier, where it's like it it kind of starts with this like here's a compilation of people who claim to be like psychic or in touch with spirits, and one of them happens to be this little girl, and this little girl has this is this jumping off point to this other thing that ends up with the uh, the town at the bottom of the dam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the like, what the it's like the kind of spiritual history of that town, I guess. But it is like weird. I feel like it does take a while for all those threads to come together in a way where you're just like, oh, I see. Yeah. You know, I, but for a majority of it, I mean, what I thought was kind of neat was even though, like, for good chunks of it, I was like, I really don't know what's going on, but I just feel this. There's this, like, really extreme feeling of dread mm. throughout throughout the movie even when you're watching totally banal things or things like that that guy in the aluminum or in the you know the paper foil or whatever like it's funny i mean it's so comical looking at the beginning but then over the course of the movie it becomes it stops being like jokey yeah and it's just like terrifying even though it's the same lo-fi 
costume the entire time, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he stops seeming like, yeah, when you first meet him on that uh, talk show, there he, there is something comical about his his sort of freaked, how freaked out he is, how he's mm-hmm. like barely verbal and how he lunges at uh, Mariko Matsumoto and everything. You feel a little like he's he's kind of a clown. And there are some sort of not not slapstick, but there are some sort of physical comedy moments in this in the segment with um, the other actress uh, Maria Takagi. So it's a bit funny, but very quickly you do start to feel what, almost like what being that guy would be. You at least I find myself very quickly able to like empathize with him, mm. and not just empathize like oh poor man who's lost his mind, but be like. No, this dude is right. <laughs> like, this dude actually is seeing what's going on around all these other characters who are caught up in something they don't quite understand. And this dude has, like, the burden of prophecy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or something. And so then suddenly the tinfoil and his his wide eyes and his, just the noises he makes, they stop being funny and they start being, like, horrible. Mm, yeah. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to figure, like, what the the worms are as he sees them. Because we don't... Right, because... Yeah. yeah, we don't... What are they? Are they ectoplasmic? Oh, yeah, ectoplasmic worms. There's something, something like that, right? Yeah. And so I was trying to determine when and how they would appear and what that meant for, you know, either the, like, the demon, because it seemed to be like, this seems to be surrounding that demonic character that was somehow evoked through this ritual, maybe, from mm-hmm. this town. Um, and so what were these ecto- ectoplasmic like worms in relation to this, you know, this entity, this demonic entity, and this town? Uh, like, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, actually, what they are. I'm, I'm, I, if it's just his like psychic way of feeling it, you know? I mean, that's the, the sense I get. This is based, I've seen... Uh, I've watched a bunch of these Koji Shiraishi movies um, and at least the ones I've seen all kind of do fit into what we could call like a generally Lovecraftian Mm. zone Mm. of cosmic horror and and all that kind of stuff. And so I feel like Mr. Hori is a little bit like the protagonist of um, From Beyond, specifically the Mm. the Lovecraft story, less so the movie. But, you know, in that story, you, you have a, uh, you have a guy who's able to, you know, through modulating his pineal gland, is able to perceive all these things that are beyond the normal area of human perception, and it's this wondrous thing until he realizes, oh, oh, fuck, I, I can't unsee these things, and they see me, and all that kind of stuff. So I almost get the sense that Mr. Hori is a bit like that—that that mm. he's just seeing, he's just overloaded with. Uh, horrific cosmic information all the time. Right. He's like seen the truth and now he's lost language or something, right? Yeah. Mm. It's it's driven him insane, <laughs> you know, but but he's right. Like the insanity, it's the classic Lovecraft thing of the the insanity is basically the only response to the truth. Yeah, there's there's a funny saying that I heard. I forgot where I got it from, but I heard it is like the saying is like, when you talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to you, it's called schizophrenia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I thought that was pretty funny. But it also comes up too because Kana, Kana, the little girl Kana, 
uh, I think somewhere, I think it's her, and somewhere in the movie it goes, she heard God's voice. And that's what kind of- That's right. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So it wasn't like a demon took her or something. She had some psychic- God thing. Well, I know some of that. Well, I don't know this, but I'm I'm extrapolating that some of that might be like I would be. I think some of that has to do with the difficulty in translation between not just like the Japanese language and English, but oh. like Shintoism and or Shinto and oh. our way of thinking of things. Because when once this this village, this sunken village that did a ritual to summon the demon Kagutaba and blah blah blah, comes up. Uh, Kobayashi visits like a folklorist or his local historian who tells him a bit about, oh yeah, you know, Kagutaba, it's not a very popular, it's not a spirit you hear about very much. The name, the etymology of its name is very mysterious, but what it could be, I think he says was like Kamitaba or Kamitaga, something like, oh, it might've been that, which means... And then the subtitle says like God something oh. because Kami does get translated as God mm. uh, into English, but we're talking about gods in what would effectively be called an animist yeah. way, not God or even gods like in a Greco-Roman pantheon or something like that. So I don't quite know what my point is there. No, but no, just... I, I, yeah, that actually, that's good to know that there's going to be some translation stuff, especially with this kind of movie because it's totally based on like, like, like town the towns, like folk people and and their practices, like this town's practices, and that's going to be like I, I don't. I'm trying to think of a like an analog in our culture, it, probably like country folk maybe or something, you know. And they're going to have their own specific rituals and their own like language for it. So like translation in that sense is is probably. Super. I mean, I know it's super important in trying to understand and I think like, what's going on. Yeah, like the idea that this might be. I, I think. I think that that folklorist says something too that the name of the what we're calling the demon Kagutaba is related. Like that he's saying, oh, you know, it might have a similar etymology to the name of the town, which would mean that it's sort of like we're getting into maybe like spirit of place mm. territory, or that there's something like bound up. Um, you know that that the place and this entity are they're inextricable from one another. Yeah. So even like, I think it's almost inescapable that like when we as, you know, Westerners talk about like a demon, we're kind of picturing like a Judeo-Christian demon. Yeah. Like, and this, you know, Kagutaba definitely like is scary as shit. <laughs> um, there's no no bones about that. But like, uh, I get the sense sometimes that when we're talking about kind of uh, fully non-Christian, more folk traditions, that the line between demon, God, spirit, things like that is a little more, that's less of a clear line. Mm. Yeah. But Kagutaba is definitely a scary, <laughs> uh, deadly. And so right, because it's like a demon that misbehaved or something, so they trapped it under the city. And for some odd reason, they have to kind of perform this like sacrifice to it through a medium, right? Yeah, I think it's that they they called the they called the spirit up because they were having problems, mm. and they were like, okay, you know, and that that's a fairly classic like fairly classic story you get from a lot of places is you know, oh, we've had uh, years of drought or 
famine or something like that, and all the normal methods for resolving that have failed. So now we're going to you know, enlist the aid of something a bit more volatile. And then, oh, okay, you know, this so Kagutaba is going to help us, but we have to we have to kill all these dogs, mm-hmm. and we have to keep doing in making all these sacrifices. And you know, oh, he's a he's more of a tricky spirit, so he doesn't always do what he's told. And then you know, you get fed up with him, and okay, fine, you know, we're taking our power back. And then that thing of can you ever really can you ever really take you know fully get rid of that mm. once you've brought it up. Maybe let's t- just talk about fa- the found footage genre a bit um, and kind of our own experience with, with that. Because, you know, I've, I've already said that this, is, this and Koji Shirishi's movies in general are probably my picks for the best, the best of that genre. Um, but it is still probably a genre that needs to be discussed, unpacked a bit more. Yeah, so for you, like, what sets this one apart in found footage? Well, first off, that it's actually scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that what is scary about it is uh, it's not jump scares. Um, (laughs) I thought that was hilarious that actually the only jump scares that I found in this movie were the TV TV game show. Like when they were doing the psychic TV game, they would be like the... (gasps) You know, like the subtitles would <laughs> pop out, and I was like, "What the fuck, dude?" <laughs> uh, but otherwise, otherwise, it was spooky. It was spooky in a in a proper scare. But the jump scares were the only, <laughs> just because of Japanese culture. <laughs> yeah, I think that like the, I think the problem I have with with found footage. I mean, okay, so this it's it's not the first, it's not technically the first found footage movie, but it is the one that that really made this a genre rather than a scattering of disconnected movies. But, you know, thinking back to the Blair Witch Project. So, yeah, this was in 2005, right? Yep. Yeah, and Blair Witch and when was... Went, when was Blair Witch? 98, I want to say. Mm. Okay. Uh, I remember... Yeah, I want to say 98. I, I, all I know is I remember seeing seeing the trailer for the Blair Witch back then and really thinking that it was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I thought, oh, this is a documentary. And then I remember going to see the movie and feeling like being super excited to see the movie, going to the theater. I had broken my arm that day. <laughs> and so it's like, I got to do something to offset the pain of that. I'm going to go see the Blair Witch Project. Being like so into it until the point, like the last 10 minutes or whatever, where it is just like screaming in the dark. Yeah. And it feels almost like, you know, because that becomes the blueprint for found footage movies in general, you know, over the the subsequent 20-something years, it feels like everybody just unquestioningly accepted that a bulk of the movie, of a found footage movie, has to be people running around in the dark screaming. Mm. And what I like about Noroi and another one of Shiraishi's called Occult is that there's like none of that. There's a little bit of it in Norway, but it's it feels different. And then most of what's scary about this is like Casey said, is is like dread. Mm, yeah. Which is which was there in the Blair Witch project, but is missing for me for a lot of, you know, from like grave encounters or or unfriended dark web or which was kind of fun and funny in its own, you know, that had a cool gimmick at least, but... Um, yeah, this one, the dread of this one was like, um, it was an existential dread. It was like, no, it was like spiritual 
dread, you know, like um, forces that are sort of like beyond us that we're like contending with. Whereas like Blair Witch is like, like uh, we're lost and like we could die from starvation and stuff. So it was like this real like corporate, uh, would you call it a corporeal dread? Like my body is going to get fucked up. Whereas in Norori, it's like my spirit is going to get fucked up somehow. You know, like we are entangled with some dark forces or something. Um, but, and then, but in Blair Witch, you find out that you are also entangled in some dark forces. Um, but yeah. I think the other thing, the other thing that Norori um, sort of succeeds at is like, you know, all these all found footage movies. And this would also you know, include, I guess, a little bit Lake Mungo from however many episodes ago, but like there always has to be some kind of framing reason for why this is being filmed. You know, like why would there be a camera in this empty room catching the door opening by itself yeah, or, or something right. like that? And so, so many of those movies end up being just people screaming in the dark for 90 minutes because one of the easiest uh, devices to go with is it's a paranormal investigation team in a haunted asylum. I'm talking just grave encounters right now. Like it's it's a fake ghost hunting show, and those movies always have just dudes with night vision cameras. Yeah, and so we're just going to do that. And what I like about Norway by being more like a fake documentary about a filmmaker making this, you know, you have that where it's like, well, that's why he was filming because he was making a fucking documentary. Yeah. You know, and so everything that we're seeing as like, that's the footage or whatever, it feels like, well, of course he would film that because he was making this movie following up leads and trying to interview, whatever. So you don't, you, for me, that at least makes me stop thinking about those sort of formal or technical questions of like, mm -hmm. hey, wait a minute, why are, why was somebody filming that? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, with this, it definitely does feel like for this person's research, this is how they distill it. You know, like they basically, like they package it up like it's going to be the episode of something, right? And and so, you know, presumably there's, you know, a whole library of these, right? Um, but I mean, I do like the idea that it kind of throws that out. I mean, it is, it does always seem a little, not so much in Blair Witch, but I feel like especially in like, you know, the paranormal activity movies, like the whole, like, we swear we didn't edit this, but of course it's really edited. Um, you know, so you spend everything kind of looking for like all these tricks and stuff like that. And that's fine and everything, but I mean, I feel like what's kind of, what I like about uh, Nori is like you say, I mean, it, it's still like, it really does a lot with very little. Mm. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that when supernatural things happen, it's so unsettling, even though the way they're indicating it is so subtle, you know, it's just, but it's, everything seems so kind of plain and everyday that like the first time that that woman like kind of freezes while she's standing and starts like groaning is like so unsettling because there's been an hour of so very little <laughs> happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just like, wait, why, why are we watching this clip of like a game show? And it's like, wait, 
what is happening? What what happened to the game show? Like, what are we watching now? Like, and then it, you know, it keeps kind of jumping around, and then I feel like you kind of settle into the bulk of the movie, which just feels like, well, this is what this episode would have looked like, and then after that, it's just like, okay, well, that episode's over, and now we're kind of stepping out into a different level of like storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna look at what happens afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that I'm I'm just just thinking of is that like yeah because what you're saying like we've we've gotten so little of these things we've gotten you know that and so just a like uh mariko matsumoto standing there and groaning is like the biggest payoff because of how little we've gotten it feels to me like found footage is a fundamentally minimalist genre and the unfortunate case is that most of the time it is made by people who think in a maximalist way it's people who think about horror movies as like, ah, no, ah, no, you know, thing, scary, gross, what it, like all the, just this shit happening all the time. And it would be like somebody with, um, oh God, we're all fucking music students and I'm going to, I'm going to beef this analogy, <laughs> but like, I don't know. It would be like somebody who's, who's got like a Mozart brain showing being being the one to fuck with like philip glass music mm. or something you know like somebody who who's used to that was terrible Wyatt. somebody who's who's used to thinking about like really complicated counterpoint and like all oh, a million fucking things happening and all these different themes and and you can tell i'm not a classical musician um but it's that kind of thinking being applied to something like philip glass which is like no it's just this chord for five minutes and then it's a another chord with like a hard cut that's it. We're not doing the complicated counterpoint. We're not doing, it's just fucking arpeggios. It's just. Yeah. And so I feel like the thing that makes Noroe successful is that it's like Philip Glass making Philip Glass music. Mm. It is a minimalist making a minimalist thing. Mm. Yeah, I feel you on that. There's some things that I, I, I'm, I'm curious about because I kind of wish like, I, I guess I, maybe this is me, this is my personal bias because I like patterns to cling on to. So there were certain things where I'm like, I was trying to find the patterns of the like violence that was happening, but I couldn't quite trace it. Like, so it was like, how are these people getting hurt and why? Is there like a cause and effect from like the supernatural force? Like, for instance, <laughs> there's not to say this is hilarious, but it was hilarious to me, was when he goes to visit that family and 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 the mom and daughter come out and they say goodbye, and then it just goes, they died five days later. <laughs> I was like, okay, oh, so, well, bummer, sorry, you know. Um, it is kind of funny. <laughs> but I was like, okay, uh, they died, obviously, from some supernatural force, and it's because of the the priestess, the, da- the priestess' daughter or something, who was somehow the beginning. She lived next to them, you know, so... Okay, she, her, her, and the little boy who turns out to be the sort of demonic source, if somehow, it, wh- however he is, he's like the living demon uh, kind of thing. So he probably is killing everyone. But how, what are the patterns in that? Because uh, the, they die. And then I'm wondering about like, like Kana, 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 the little girl goes missing and she's being used for something. Um, but then, the the neighbor in the top of that building that the guy who comes out and grabs the pigeon you know he dies um 
And that, but I'm not entirely sure what his role is in it. And I'm not entirely sure. And then like the actress's upstairs neighbor dies. And I'm trying to find the pattern of like why they are dying. And I couldn't quite figure it out, actually. The sense I get, I don't know if this is right or not, is that it's, I kind of get the feeling that what we're dealing with, that like Kagutaba and this sort of greater evil, this, this Lovecraftian energy or whatever, that it's almost like a radiation thing. That like mm. Kagutaba is you know, like a glowing green rod from The Simpsons, or yeah. like a radioactive yeah. material that is just, if you're like near it, you're going to get... chaos, and, yeah. and you, you, like, it radiates chaos from it. Mm. Exactly, and so that, like, when it's near, you know, yeah, because so there's, when when Kobayashi, in the beginning of the movie, is meeting with this this young girl and her mother, their neighbor is this very unfriendly aggressive woman and later she comes back and you realize like, oh shit, she's been caught up in this Kagutaba stuff all the time. So you're like, okay, so she was radiating it and that's mm. why that mom and daughter died. And then Marika Matsumoto gets it, you know, when, when she gets involved in it, then it irradiates her apartment building. And, you know, when, I don't know, it's like almost that oh, sort of thing. And so then, then Mr. Hori with his tinfoil suit, that that is, a, it's like a hazmat suit. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. He's he's like the only one who sees that there's radiation everywhere. Right. And like, oh fuck, I'm going to die if I'm exposed to this. Um that's the feeling I get. And so yeah. then it it is there is no pattern in the sense of like they didn't all do the same thing or there's no like divine judgment or something. It's but the pattern is like, well, you all came in contact with this energy. Yeah. Which would make sense too because um you know, like anything, depending on the person, you know, in their own, uh, you know, psychic makeup, they might be more susceptible, you know, to, and they might die quicker or, you know, be driven in a certain direction more so than other people. So maybe the neighbors who are dying are just like, they just can't handle this psychic force or whatever, you know, this radiation, you know. Yeah, I guess if you're already sick, say, and then some, you know, awful environmental contagion thing, you know, you're going to be more likely to get, uh, have a real bad time with that versus somebody who wasn't already, you know, sick, say. Right. Yeah. Well, and along those lines, it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting to think like, okay, well, so the, uh, from my perspective, this kind of, uh, a way of thinking of it is one of the ways that kind of makes that last handful of minutes of the movie after the quote-unquote episode is over, you know, and it's just like what, you know, it's like how do you fit like that last 10 minutes where you actually see why his house burned down, mm. you know, for example. Like to me, that that felt really similar to Cure in a way, Dude. where it's like the, I mean, and I'm curious if, if this feels like a sensible way to think about it to y'all or not. Like to me, it's like, what's the scariest thing about a movie like Cure? It's like, well, you know, at the core of existence is this kind of violence, Mm. you know, that's like unexplainable and it's like contagious Mm. somehow. And I feel like in a way that's kind of what is happening in this movie too. It's like, there is this unspeakable you know, demon, 
but like in a way what the demon lets us see is that the banality of kind of the futility of existence is like what's actually at the core of that you know terrifying mm. truth mm. you know what i mean yeah. like I don't know. I mean, does that make any sense? I'm just trying to think of like, why does his wife light herself on fire? Like, yeah, she was, I guess, again, was she infected by the boy who's like the embodiment of the evil? Or I don't know. Does any of that make any sense to y'all? Yeah. Oh, it totally makes sense. I would guess it's, I'm, I'm, I guess maybe I'm, I'm going with the contagion thing that it's like, you know, this, that, that you have this Kagutaba energy and it's just so, uh, strong and virulent and all that, that, you know, unless you're, it seems to be unless you're just completely like, <laughs> like thick headed and oblivious <laughs> or you're covered in tinfoil <laughs> that you're going to be, uh, you're going to be caught up in it. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I would go with that mm. at least. Yeah. Also probably at the end, I was thinking about that too. Um, for some reason, the demon boy was like kind of chill. He's like, well, I'm just eating omelets, you know? It's all good, <laughs> you know? Like, like whatever, until Hori comes in and starts bashing his head in with a rock, you know? With a rock. So then maybe yeah. it made him a little irritable, and then he exerted more, like, he, like, pushed out more energy and was like, well, you light yourself on fire. And because he even took control of Hori. Because oh. he took control oh. of Hori. And Hori is supposed to be this like psychic, you know, like sensitive psychic, like wise. Yeah, the force. only one who gets Con it. Conduit kind of thing. Yeah. But even even he got caught up and then at the end was under the spell of this thing and then walked it out, you know. And gets stuffed in an air duct. And then gets stuffed in an air duct. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which is another, like a lot of stuff with Mr. Hori is one of those images that like when they show the press cutting of him like, man founded air vent, or, which is like, what newspaper shows yeah. I was gonna say, that's a, a close-up yeah. photo of a dead body. Dead body yeah. in public. Yeah, yeah, right. I was thinking that but same it's, thing. But it's funny at first where you're like, it's, it's Mr. Hori shoved in a vent with like his legs bent the wrong way. But very quickly you're like, Oh, no, I don't like that. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome. Like, uh, it's both funny and... Did you guys just get this message? Yeah, that, it ends in 15 minutes. Okay, so I, I'm i going to... When it ends, I'm going to call you back. Okay, cool. And we're just... It'll give us another... Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. And just just don't stop recording so we don't have to, you know... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, totally, totally. Yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, What's so up? even Mr. Hori gets fucked in the end. <laughs> It's funny though. He's he's kind of a good window to the way that it kind of shifts tones throughout, right? Because you know, like we were saying earlier, like when he's first introduced, it it feels like he's a comic relief character, and then it's uh, like oh, he's he's seen so much, and then it's uh, almost like oh, he actually understands, and then you know, to a kind of. Well, he's he's insane, I guess. After all, I don't know. I mean, but it's interesting how it just kind of keeps pushing you around yeah. in terms of, you know, is this character serious or not? Yeah. You know, well, it always goes back to me thinking about like how we treat the idea of psychics or mediums or even just like spiritual leaders and holy men, and holy women, you know, all of these things. Mm -hmm. How we treat these things is we often think that because they have an exposure to some some higher, uh, higher for lack of a better word, you know, 
way of thinking that they are then without fault, which was hilarious to me because obviously Hori is not without fault because he the demon takes him at the end, you know. But I was also laughing because at the dam, he's just like, that direction, I'm running in that direction into this dark forest. And I was like, don't follow that dude. <laughs> I was like, I was like he, he's probably, he knows, he senses things, but that doesn't mean that he's right <laughs> in doing probably. that. He yeah. still might be. And of course, then they ran into the forest with like dead an, dead dogs everywhere. And, you know, we saw how it came about. And then they see the actual, you know, because, okay, this is one other thing that, that this movie has that, I mean, this this is a contentious thing with found footage movies is the inclusion of actual, like, VFX ghosts. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Blair Witch doesn't have any of that. It's it's just, you know, regular humans in the woods yelling. And, you know, the, yeah. the scariest thing is that there's some sticks hanging from trees and a mm-hmm. guy looking in the corner or whatever. So you have almost, that's the... That would be, I guess, like the purest found footage thing where it's like, no, there would be no, you know, ghost effects or anything because that pulls us out of the, that makes the suspension of disbelief that this is actually the last video footage of some missing person. We can't suspend that disbelief anymore. I'm seeing the artifice. Don't do it. And then you have something like Grave Encounters, which I brought up several times. Um, Also, there's a movie called, there's a found footage movie called as above, so below, oh, which I definitely that, yeah. watched just because of the title. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's all right. I like that at least it's. I like the setting of like the Paris catacombs and that kind of stuff. But you know, you have movies like that where it's you do get like okay, there's we're, we're going for effects and yeah. we're we're doing something like that. And so I think what's interesting with Norway is that it is largely on the purest end of the found footage thing, except for like three or four moments where there are uh, obvious supernatural apparition horror movie type things. And they are also visibly low budget effects. Mm. I think that they are awesome. <laughs> um, I don't know what you guys think, but uh, I bring this all up to say because that point where Mr. Horry and the one cameraman run into the woods is the biggest of those overt spiritual or spirit effects. Yeah, that's like... Where, where we... Yeah. Oh, sorry, not to cut you off. That's like Kana, the little girl with the babies, right? Yeah, just covered. covered we in, see Kana, the missing yeah. little girl covered in dead babies. Yeah, yeah which are... <laughs> which are... More no, I, th- I, 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 I thought those were super effective. You know, I, re- I really like... I mean, it's funny, you know, this movie does a lot of kind of leaning into how of its era the technology is. And it like, I mean, I watched it streaming, so who knows, but my impression is like all of the, all of the stuff that's cheeseball, like the kind of digital zoom into like just parts of a frame and stuff like that, loved it. Like to me, that just added to the authenticity of the whole thing that it's like, oh yeah, this is this guy's taste. He is a paranormal researcher, like, you know, um, but then I like I loved those those obvious affected moments because they had such impact. Like both times you see Kana just draped in like, 
you know, you barely get a glimpse of it, right? Like, but it's, it's like kind of shocking, right? Um, I, I thought it was fantastic. Like to me, that was kind of perfect. I, I, I mean, I've already said I really liked it. And, and I think, I think what I'm about to say, I, I, I have the feeling that I've said this on an episode before, but I think it's that, that, one episode that will never be released, Dave. Um, the, but uh, so I don't think this has actually been, but this is a, it makes me think of, of something that, that a writer called Victoria Nelson said about um, kind of horror movie effects and their, how they come across in different times. You know, that we have these, we have older movies where it's miniatures and puppets and guys in suits. And then we have high, super modern movies where it's really photorealist or yeah, very realistic computer graphics and all that kind of stuff. And her assessment was that the older way, the effects look fake, but feel real. Mm. And that the new way they look real, but feel fake. Mm. And I feel like Noroe is a perfect example of effects that look fake, but feel real. Where if I'm looking at them fully critically, like as somebody who knows a little bit about how VFX work and all that, I'm like, this is a fucking effect. It's like, that's not a real ghost of a girl covered in dead baby. This is a fucking computer effect. I know how this is, this was done, but in terms of like my heart and my body, I'm like, that's a ghost. Mm. <laughs> and that there's, I think somewhere in this idea in Victoria Nelson's idea, and at least the way I feel it too, is that there is something almost like that the fakeness or the artifice is actually what's making it feel authentic. Mm. Yeah, also you have to remember it's like because it's found footage, they we always see it through the lens of a camera. Whereas like in a real movie, you're not supposed to know that there's a camera there. <laughs> you know, it's just it it's supposed to that's supposed to be reality. There's no camera, that's reality in this fictitious world. But in found footage stuff, there is a camera. You are always looking through the lens of a camera. So the the digital effects are okay with that because it's clearly Oh, this is on a camera, and they—they may not. The characters may not be seeing this in real life. They often see these weird glitches when they go back and they look at the footage themselves. You know, right? So, yeah, the 2005 digital like effects, it work work well in that sense because it's they're supposed to be viewed on a like a whatever the digital cameras were at the time. Or, yeah, yeah, or like you know, DVR cameras or whatever. I don't know. Mini DV, I think it yeah. probably would have still been, but yeah. but I also think that there's absolutely, but I also think that there's something in this that's like getting a, a little bit away from the movie and into maybe the the actual paranormal or whatever. But like, there's a bit of this that's like when people criticize, say, an if an effect in a lower budget horror movie like Norway, and they say that spooky ghost doesn't look like a real spooky ghost. And I, I, I'm kind of like, what does a real spooky ghost look like? Mm. Are you telling me that you've seen a ghost? Because <laughs> otherwise, how do you know what that would yeah. actually look like? Maybe it would look fake. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Like, this, this division between like the normal and the paranormal. So the normal world is all the stuff that I take, I take in unquestioningly. <laughs> I look at the, the microphone in front of my face and I say, yeah, that makes sense. I look at the computer and you guys on it and I say, no, you guys aren't apparitions. You're my friends in little windows on my computer. And I've seen my computer all the time. This totally makes sense. But if like 
a fucking little girl covered with dead babies just showed up in my living room or something like that. Am I saying that it would have to look like there is a bodily little girl? Like, yeah. would she look like a living little girl? Because she's not a living little girl. She's a, a ghost or a psychic energy residue or mm. something like that. So that there's almost this idea that when you get movies that make a ghost look really real, it looks faker because a real ghost would look fake. Yeah. I think this is one of the more stupid sounding things I've said <laughs> on here. But. Well, dude, that, that's actually kind of interesting. That um, I think I was talking to you about this in another episode where I was talking about this, like uh, this book by this neuro. Uh, like, yeah, V.S. Ramachandran, this, like, neuroscientist. Um, and he was talking about an, a different condition where people literally hallucinate and they know that they're hallucinating, but there's nothing they can do about it. You know, so they go in to see the doctor and they're like, the doctor is like, well, what are you seeing? And it's like, well, I see you sitting there, but there's a, there's a monkey crawling all over you. And he's like hopping on your shoulders and sitting in your lap and stuff like that. And he's like, is there really a monkey there? Do you believe that? And he's like, no, I know it's a hallucination, but I see it, you know? So I, I, you, we have no clue how those people see those things because of like a brain injury or, or whatnot, you know, the processing. Um, it could look totally CGI. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. Like if, if it looked like Donkey Kong, yeah. from like Donkey Kong Country, yeah. if it looked like an, a Super Nintendo gorilla yeah. hopping around on the doctor's shoulders, is that less of the, is, is that somehow like less of a valid hallucination than if it looked like a, a real monkey? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. And, and uh, the way you're talking about this and the way I would, if I try to empathize with that person or whatever, I think, I think it would be fucking horrifying even if it was Donkey Kong. <laughs> like, I think if I started seeing like little Keebler elves like walking through my living room and they yeah. looked like straight up out of the commercials when, from when we were kids, I would be like, what the fuck? No <laughs> less than I would if they looked like little flesh and blood. Right. You know, like one foot tall men. That would all, it'd be like, it doesn't matter. Something impossible is happening. You'd probably get used to it though. If it kept happening, if it kept I'd happening, probably get used to it. You'd probably be like, all right, well, what up? Or what I would cover else? myself in tinfoil. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, in a way, it's like Nuri is at such an extreme with found footage because, I mean, like I feel like it earns those couple those brief moments of like you know breaking away from its very practical, very you know um, period kind of oriented technology. You know, just for these kind of fantastical, otherworldly moments. Um, and you know, to me, that really felt like earned in a way that that I think you know because they're so short. And because so much of the movie is so consistent with itself, it like it just seems strange in a way that makes sense rather than like from a different movie, you know? Yeah, I guess that's actually a good way of putting it is like from a different movie. That that's I think that's the thing that really takes a person out of a viewing experience or whatever is the the sense that like this what is happening now doesn't fit with you know the the world of the movie as we've come to understand it. And you're right that the even the obvious computer effects in Norway still feel like, no, this is the movie. Yeah. I'm going to end the call now and just call you guys yeah, back because 
there was a nat- natural stop there. So just so, keep recording. Good. I'll be back. Yes. Dig it. So I will mention this again when Dave jumps on, but I have been thinking about the My House walkthrough uh, and this very similarly. I mean, I feel like both of them, like it's crazy how vivid they both are. You know what I mean? Yeah, really. So Dave, I was just I was just telling Wyatt, like I've been thinking of this movie, like of course, of course, you know, the well, first of all, just the distinction that you made earlier, Dave, I, I think of like, you know, Noroe is like this kind of spiritual, you know, kind of orientation and like Blair Witch has this more corporal, you know, kind of body, you know, earthly kind of orientation is a good one. But, um, you know, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about is like if you push kind of Blair Witch aside for just a moment, like this movie feels very similar to um, the My House Walkthrough, which was another oh, yeah. movie that I was unfamiliar with until y'all's uh, episode some time ago kind of pointed me in that direction. But like in both cases, like they're genuinely scary in ways that far exceed the means that they use to kind of create that atmosphere. You know, it's like both of these movies, even like we were talking about earlier with the small amount of special effects that you get in Noroe, like both of them, like it's so normal looking. You know, it just looks like somebody, I mean, it really, they really nail like the feel and the production level of like this is informally made by someone who's a non-expert or someone who does this a lot, but, you know, isn't particularly good at producing, you know, like a 30-minute story of their, you know, weird research, you know, episodes or whatever. Um, So I don't know. I mean, and for that reason, it really makes it feel, this movie feel a lot different than Paranormal Activity which especially when they're really leaning into the structural aspects of that that film in the earlier parts of the series I really liked you know but of course that's like especially 2 and 3 those are like big budget movies that are pretending to have these severe structural constraints and be like no budget whereas I feel like Noroe is just incredibly creative and that's why it's really scary in a way that a lot of other movies with 10 times the budget can't be scary, you know? And it's really believable and, you know, I mean, I just think it's really effective when it really starts going, it really ramps up from like, you know, two or three to like seven and then it just kind of cruises right around that for from a tension standpoint, as far as I'm concerned, for basically the rest of the movie. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, it's just kind of amazing to me like how much is accomplished with so little. Absolutely. I think that is, I mean, the the Blair Witch, I guess three movies counts as a franchise. Paranormal Activity is absolutely a franchise. Um, am I using that word? It's a series. I don't know. What's the fucking, is this the Marvel thing, like making everything a franchise and now it's it's in, it's <laughs> infected my brain like Kagutaba? Um, that's the real, the real is, horror. Yeah, what is a franchise? What is it? I mean, a franchise in external reality is like that the A&W down the street from me is owned yeah. by one guy and the one across the river is owned by a different guy, but they're all sub, uh, subsidiaries of the larger A&W Canada corporation. So I think yeah, Paranormal right. Activity 
the however 11 paranormal activity movies would fall under that because they're probably all produced by the same company executive produced by the people who wrote and directed the first one but they're probably directed by different people now gotcha. i think and the paranormal activity series and the blair witch series and any of these uh, other found footage movies where we've got multiple entries um you do like casey were saying you you start to see like a massive shift between the first entry in the series and if not immediately in the second one at least yeah by the third fourth or whatever that um you know and, and a lot of that has to do with the first one being the first entry in a found footage series generally being made for about the same budget as the actual movie they are uh claiming to be making if if the the students the characters in the Blair Witch Project are like grad students or they might even be undergrad students so they've got some cameras that they either rented from their college's AV department or that they bought at, you know, Walmart or whatever with student money. And you feel like, yeah, the people who made the Blair Witch Project probably didn't have much more money than real grad students would. Right. You yeah. know, the, the guy who made the first Paranormal Activity movie probably went to Best Buy and bought the actual cameras that the characters in Paranormal Activity would have bought. And then, you know, yeah, you get the second entry where it's like, oh, that's a real camera now. And they're, they're downgrading it in post or something like that to make it look like they're putting a filter on it to make it look like it's a, no, 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 it's all low budget now. Or, mm -hmm. you know, those movies where it's like, oh, it's supposed to all be your phone, but why does it look so good? And <laughs> why does yeah. it look like your phone is being operated by a trained cinematographer? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Unsane? I think it's Unsane by Soderbergh. No. What's that? It's it's not it's not a found footage film, but it's all shot on iPhone. Oh yeah. Oh okay. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's. I, I I thought it was pretty interesting because it has. It's like I don't. I forgot when it came out. Six years ago, five six years ago maybe. Um, but it has iPhone quality footage. Interesting. Oh yeah. But made by a professional film director with probably a professional crew and a set and stuff like that. I know there's, um, I mean, that movie Tangerine comes to mind, like the, mm -hmm. uh, from also, I want to say like six, seven years ago or something. I think the whole deal with that was that it was also shot on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And I know that, um, uh, fucking old boy, uh, uh, Chenwick Park made something all on an iPhone, but I don't remember offhand what, that was, but since these are all people who are, you know, quite talented, I would, I would imagine that they would handle the iPhone, the iPhone thing very well versus, you know, whoever they got to make the paranormal activity movie about, about the yeah. Amish. Did you see that one? <laughs> I had, uh, I think I jumped I off. I really religiously watched the paranormal activities until they really stopped having anything important happening around like the style of filmmaking that was like the under the undercurrent structural element you know that every movie has you know cuz like the first one it's just the one camera just basically facing at their bed in the hallway and the second one if i recall correctly is like her sister and her sister lives in a McMansion and they have like multi-camera security systems. And then the third one is supposed to be the 70s. And so 
they make, they like tape a camcorder to a fan. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> and they do a lot of, frankly, really cool stuff just with the timing of that. Like that's that's uh, what really yeah. stands out to me. And then, and then I think there's one where it's like webcams, and it's like, okay, you're running out of ideas. And then, I, and then I yeah. think that's when they started doing kind of the thing that Blair Witch basically did in number two, where it's like, all right, well, let's just pretend we've got a whole lore here, and we can just make movies in the paranormal activity universe. And I feel like one of the many things that's lame about this is that they end up trying to explain every fucking thing. You know, part of what I think makes Nori so unsettling is that you don't really get much in the way of an explanation. You know, or you get yeah. explanations that are kind of seemingly at odds with each other at different points of the movie. That is actually a really good point that that um, the the sort of either contradictory or just like going back to sort of how the movie builds up as it goes along, that it it doesn't do the kind of build you identified, Dave, of like, um, you know, just increase in intensity to some kind of like cliffhanger, oh, fuck, and then credits kind of moment. That it that it is a bit all over the place. So you have things like like Kana, you know, the the missing girl who sort of spurs all this stuff into action, is on a televised like a news segment where they're trying to test if these kids have psychic powers, and they go through all the the sort of the real tests that people you know like the men who stare at goats and all that those kinds of actual psychic research programs would do. Of you know, we have a sealed envelope with. Uh, a number on it. What's the number? And then, you know, increasingly complex. And, and we're seeing, you know, that most of the kids are performing in a way that's accounted for by statistics and all that stuff. But the Kana is just fucking nailing. It. And, you know, that the one question she gets wrong, she only gets wrong because she drew Kagu Kagutaba instead of, you know, the mm. pony or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So even it was like, oh, yeah. Um, it was like uh, what is it? It's like Russian letters. That's like right. A it was a Cyrillic of some sort. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like Cyrillic text, and she drew Kag Kagutaba's face. So even mm -hmm. the thing that the that the researcher is like, ah, well, you know, you couldn't get ten out of ten. We're like, no, dude, she got ten out of ten. Like, yeah, yeah. And but see, I was wondering. No, just, oh, I'm sorry. I was wondering. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, just, no, go for just it. the one <laughs> other thing while we're just just while we're talking about that 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 scene of the psychic research is that one of the things they're doing is trying to make water appear in a sealed uh, jar, and Kana does it. Not only does she make the jar fill with water, but she, but also a hair appears in the water, and they test the hair, and it's like the hair of a newborn baby. Oh, super yeah. gross. I don't know why, but I the entire I was watching that entire scene and I was just like this is not that gross, but I feel really grossed out. Exactly. Right now. Yeah. It, yeah. The also the color of the water was weird, like, right? kind of didn't weird. look clean. Yeah. And that did gross. Me. No, it didn't look clean. It was kind of grossed me out too. But yeah, um, what were you going to say? Yeah. But, oh yeah, so I was like I was wondering what the Cyrillic text says. That's a good question. And if there was actually a connection to uh, the demon, you know. Yeah, if it was uh, a nonsense word chosen or chosen as a nonsense word, but now what we know after the whole movie, we would look back and see, oh man, it, you know. Yeah, or or does Kana is like, she has a hammer and everything is looks like a nail. <laughs> she has Kagutaba or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and every, everything looks like that to her, you know, like is she just... Um, 
So I don't know. I don't know if those were connected. Um, but it does, I mean, with, I don't know if they're connected either, but but one thing that, um, like, that I think that, that segment of this news show with the, are we, are these kids psychic? What that does as far as what, like Casey was talking about with kind of the technical framework that we're in with a found footage type movie is that this is, I think from the angle of somebody coming at found footage from either the Blair Witch Project or say the Paranormal Activity movies or whatever, this is a mess. Um, <laughs> and lots of things seem like, you know, what does this have to do with anything? What is this? I think you said that towards the beginning, Casey, you know, like, what am I watching here? And that it's after really like an hour in or so where you start to get the sense like, oh, that wasn't all disconnected stuff. It actually, and I feel like there's something about that that again would, feels more accurately representative of what interacting with something like this in reality would be like, that if if some weird thing started happening, if I heard a crying baby from the you know place next door and there's no baby over there and I call you guys over and you're like, hey, do you hear that too? And yeah, and like it would just be this mystery that sort of builds and my I go in different directions with it and I think, wait, maybe it's this and oh, oh, there's this other, and now I found this village up in the mountains. And, you know, that that's kind of how this goes when you're dealing with weirdness yeah. in reality, that you there is no clear path laid out before you because if there was, there wouldn't be a mystery. And you wouldn't follow the that's path. That's true. Yeah, like, we're spoiled as movie viewers because we have, our time is valuable. <laughs> and so within an hour and a half, you better be giving me exactly what's going to the plot. But in real life, if I like was onto this mystery, I would have a bunch of false paths that I'd be going on. I'd have a bunch of like weird ways of connecting things too. It would take time for things to connect. You know, it wouldn't be that clear cut. Yeah. And I think that like, there's something, I mean, this, this is not just a problem of found footage. This is sort of a problem of genre in general, uh, in anything. Like once you start to, once you've learned what to expect, from the genre, you're kind of in like diminishing returns territory. You know, the, the first time you saw a slasher movie, you're like, are any of these horny teenagers going to survive? And then, you know, after you've seen 30 of them, you're like, well, yeah, the one who survives, it's going to be the girl who didn't have sex with anybody. There was a book about this. It's the final girl. Like, I know what's going on here. So I feel like with yeah. the, once we've got the found footage thing, the pattern established of, you know, creepy thing, creepier thing, even creepier thing, false resolution, oh shit, the ghost got her, that then you know, like, yeah, that's what they're all going to do. And then the movie just, the, or the filmmakers yeah. just try to think, well, let's just, we can't change that pattern. We just have to do it more extremely. Just make make the thing yeah. bigger and louder and crazier. And I feel like what, like, Kojishiro Ishii does in all these movies is is like, well, what if we fuck with the structure, like the story structure? What if we what if we actually play with your expectations rather than trying to exceed your expectations? Mm. Yeah, which, which is sort of like a, a traditional plot, somewhat. You know, like, um, well, I think about it musically, obviously, like in classical music, you would have like anticipation and, or is it, like, you know, um, resolution and anticipation kind of thing. Whereas like if you're writing chords for people, you can play with how they think about it. Like, oh, this one sounds right. This one doesn't sound right. You hold them on that for a certain amount of time until you make it sound right. And then it resolves. And it's this kind of play back and forth of that, which is like kind of 
seemingly basic plot writing. Yeah. You know, uh, um, which he's kind of doing with storylines, but with the found footage. Because like the other other way of doing it would be, you know, as Casey was pointing out with the paranormal activity stuff, where it's like it's just focused on how a camera works, you know, and then it's playing with that. Um, so yeah, he's playing more with story in the realm of these cameras, in these yeah. in this technology, in found footage technology, but how the story unfolds. It makes me think just because it's been, you know five episodes since we've talked about Autecker at all. Um, <laughs> it, it makes me think like this, this sense of, you know, like, okay, we've got found footage movies and we're, yeah, what Casey, how Casey laid it out. Like the first paranormal activity is one camera. The second one is multiple. The third one is an old school camera. The fourth one is a webcam. Like that you have to, because you can't do the same thing again. You, we kind of, you know, you you blew your load or whatever gross expression there is um, <laughs> for the video camera thing. So now we have to totally change the paradigm, man. And the reason I bring up Autecker is because, you know, when I was 20 or whatever and was already big into, you know, Warp Records stuff and all this, you know, uh, increasingly com- complicated, complex, uh, you know, IDM stuff, I remember Will Kreppel being like, you got to get into Venetian snares, man. And I was like, sign me up. I'm listening to it. And I'm like, hell yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. It's an escalation of, if I thought Square Pusher chopped up breakbeats in crazy ways, this dude does it real crazy because they're all in seven. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's sampling Bartok or whatever. Um, and then somewhere there was just this moment of real, like, just like a, negating moment that I had where it was just like, oh, this fucking sucks. <laughs> like, mm. this, it's just going to be this. It's just going to be, like, more complicated. Like, he's going to have to keep... He, we're in, like, an arms race now with production <laughs> of, like, dudes are just going to try to outproduce each other. You know, people making... You got to make IDM complicated, bro. You know, and I feel like Autecker, in contrast to a lot of uh, people in that world managed to sidestep that by totally leaving behind like dance music compositional structures by like Venetian snares and other pe- people like that would be like, yeah, dude, the songs are really complex, but they're still basically drum and bass tracks. Like, like mm. they, they work in the same way that, you know, a Goldie track does or a LTJ Bookham track does. They're just really aggressive where Autecker was like, what if we didn't even try to make a drum and bass track? What if we didn't even try to make a techno track or a hip hop track or whatever? What if we just followed the sounds where the sounds are going and let, I don't know, something like let an album come out of where the where we've gone with that rather than trying to f- just build on, literally build on the thing we did before. Yeah, like um, not to approach it in a superficial like we're uh, married to this genre and the like tropes of this genre or whatever. Like, yeah, which happens like with found footage where it's like, oh, we have to make a found footage thing. It's like, okay, let's brainstorm. How do we make a found footage? (laughs) You know, it's like, let's get found footage for dummies and figure out how to do it. And it's like, well, you need some technology, you know, thing. And it's like, well, there's like kind of, there can be a lot of superficial decision-making perhaps, you know? Whereas like the Autech 
Otakarian <laughs> way to doing found footage would be like, well, we got these shitty cameras. Let's just like use them and see how it, it works, you know, and like just make something like listen to it and naturally have it come out. Um, yeah. If I'm following. You. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not like a, you know, the, the most, uh, it's not the strictest comparison or anything like that. Um, <laughs> it's more. So I do have a question about the movie. Uh, Not about Ottecker. So at the end. <laughs> no, I Are there any questions about Ottecker? <laughs> no, I mean, so there's, you know, 24 hours in a day and 16 of those hours are Ottecker for okay. me. So <laughs> let me, I, I need a little bit of a break right now. <laughs> um, but so at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, the camera gets mailed to... You, you, like the resol- what happens to his house? Uh, I can- forgot his name. The paranormal investigator Kobayashi. House. Kobayashi. Kobayashi. Yeah. So, does Kobayashi mail the camera in? And is he rogue now? Is he like gone? Is he like? I picture him to kind of be like, well, this this thing destroyed my life. Now I'm gonna have to like go on some mythic quest to figure out how to destroy this demon or, or he's the you new know? mr hori and he's like in a shack covered in oh yeah well, that's yeah that, yeah maybe <laughs> those those one thing that i wonder i wonder if that's related to kind of like what what you were just mentioning you know david like to like how which part of this is the curse you know it's like mm. um like is it that right before Kobayashi disappeared, he sent this in. Is it the camera person who, you know, is at least around for like a lot? You know, there's a specific person who's operating the camera, right? Um, oh, yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe I just missed this, but I don't recall there ever being any mention of what happened to that person. That's a good point. You know? So he didn't, he didn't have the camera at the end in the burning house. It was Kobayashi. See, it seemed like at the end that was Kobayashi by himself. So I don't know. To me, I was like, oh, I wonder what if what if there's like this part of this story that we don't get to hear about, which is, you know, hey, camera person, this is what Kobayashi finished, or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? Somehow, like, hey, yeah. can can you help me put this together? Kind of a situation, you know. Mm. Yeah. I was just gonna say it's it, as far as I can tell it's un, it's unclear. I mean the I mean unless I missed it, it seemed like the clearest answer we got about that is it's just like well Kobayashi disappeared. Yeah. Um, and then what? Both the the you know Kana and the other character are both deceased, right? Uh, yeah. Hori, who knows? No, he gets stuffed know. in the in the van. Oh right, 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 right. Yeah, oh, he yeah, was okay, uh, yeah. on paper dead. Uh, (laughs) demon boy probably back in the demon world right Uh, Kobayashi's wife set herself on fire yeah so I guess it it is that other cameraman oh and we see like Marika Matsumoto is like she's happy we see her like at dinner or something and she's like having a drink or so it's like all right, so she's fine everybody else seems fucked where's Kobayashi and then yeah where's this camera person yeah when I, I I'm curious. Oh, go ahead. What happens to the little boy? Too? Yeah, the little demon. Right? Boy. Like, because I wonder. I wonder if that's part of how. Maybe the, I mean, it. It's fun to ask the question. 
how does it work in a situation like this where you know you can't get the answer? Yeah. In a way that if the movie had said, this is how it works, I would be pissed. So I just want to throw it out there. Like What I really love about this movie, and I think that one of the things that makes it successful that I think is in line with other found footage movies, but also good curse movies that don't go, this is, let me underscore precisely how the curse works. I happen to know, oh, yeah. I happen to have someone who's an academic who studies exactly this that we can appeal to, you know? Or like, or like whatever, it's like we figured out the curse, so now we're gonna go fight it. You know, next movie is fighting the curse. In this one, it's just like, yeah, we kind of talked about how the curse works, but it's not even really clear who's getting cursed, per se. Or, you know, like, I don't know. So I, I feel like those two things together really put it in a compelling area, you know? It's, it's kind of got, like, this orientation towards this is a found footage kind of a structure, and at the same time, this is also, like, a curse movie, but it kind of doesn't take the typical steps that either of those kinds of things would do, you know? Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about for like a curse movie that even though I, I remember thinking this movie was fun, but but one that would in the in the way you're talking about it, like be doing it wrong, would be like Drag Me to Hell, that Sam Raimi movie yeah. from a while ago, where it's like very early in the movie, okay, this our main character gets cursed by an old witch lady. Mm -hmm. These are, and then she goes to a psychic. The psychic says, you got cursed by an old witch lady. Here's what the <laughs> curse means. You got whatever, three days to live or something. And then we see the three days in which she lives and then she gets dragged to hell. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's very clear what the curse is, who's cursed and you know, the title of the movie tells us what's going to happen at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a clear transaction. Yeah, has occurred. totally. Thank you. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. But I mean, I think that's something that there, there are a lot of these, you know, horror films. I mean, again, this kind of makes me think of something like Pulse or Cure, where part of why they're really, really unsettling is because they don't necessarily ever give you uh, specific, this is how it works explanation. And it, it just kind of ends up being like, oh, it's just like the world is terrifying. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, uh, I feel like that's where you end up, not like, this is how this curse happens. It's like, oh, there are curses in the world and we don't even get them. Right. You know? Like, wait, that's a thing that can happen to me and I might not know. That it's even happening, or what to do, like what to do about it. That's way crazier. Yeah, it's it's scarier if it's not like in the movies, right? Like I don't want to get cursed mm. and then be like, well, now I'm just cursed and I can't, I can't fight it. You know? Yeah. I have no idea how it works. What if we find out the perpetrators of the whole thing was that two man ungirls? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Ungirls, I'm, really I'm really glad you brought that up because I remember when Ungirls were there and I was just like, this rules. I hope Ungirls, I hope Ungirls are prominently featured in this movie. And I was... <laughs> Is that a real band? Good question. Did not look it up. But uh, I was, okay, because like, they, they pulled it off. With the MTV style being like, hello, it's us. And they're kind of making half band jokes. They're like kind of humorous dudes. And they're like, oh, we got this actress and we're going to... Hang out in the 
scary woods, you know, like it was it pretty, feels like it, it could have been like Bam Margera yeah. or somebody totally. doing that. Like Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, ungirls. I want to find out. <laughs> the beginning of the movie What's had real be? like I am <laughs> dubbing things off of cable onto tape vibes. You know? Yeah. Like that's yeah. and and that was that first third where where I just felt like it was like, oh, this is almost like somebody's home movie kind of compilation of things. Mm. And then it's like, oh, now it's like this guy's episode. And then it's like, oh, now it's going to break the fourth wall and, and make me think about authorship and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think there's something like, there is something about found footage in general that even though it's it's a genre that, there's a huge number of very silly unscary, unsuccessful or whatever found footage movies, but it's a genre that like at its core really does like fuck with me because I feel like that's, um, you know, growing up like the age, the age we all are and growing up with media, you know, grow, I mean, not that I guess most people alive now grew up with TV existing in some form or another, but you know, like we all had TVs in our houses they, those TVs were all hooked up to, you know, cable or direct TV or, you know, whatever the new technology at the time was to get all this information from all these places around the world. And then the internet shows up and we find, whoa, there's these websites with weird, I can look up Bigfoot on the internet and see photos of Bigfoot or this idea of like, there's more and more information coming into my world from everywhere else and the feeling that somewhere in there something like impossible might happen, that you might stumble upon, you know, a, a dead channel at, up at the very top of cable or something like that, that, you know, you see something on it and you're like, what was that? And you ask your friends, what was that? And, you know, are we all seeing this? Or you go to some website that, I mean, this is like the foundation of a million ARGs or whatever is like, some website that's got cryptic information and what happened to the person who made it. And like this idea of, you know, this mystery being tied to timely technology stuff and the sense that also like pulse that there could be that this new technology might be a new way for something horrible to come into the world. Mm -hmm. That's way yeah. scarier to me. Like my actual, you know, not watching a movie self, then the idea that like there's a guy who escaped from the mental hospital and has an axe and is going to to yeah. try to murder me with an axe. Yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of the Lovecraftian vibe of it, right? Is that like the stuff beyond perception. Um, whereas like an axe just it's just gonna hurt really badly. <laughs> like, mm. And you know, we don't want that. I don't want an axe to hit me. We've all but, cut uh, our fingers before yeah, or cooking yeah. or whatever. So then we just yeah. think, well, it's like that, but really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You right, know, if I cut right. my finger off, that would be really bad. And then my arm off, that'd be even worse or whatever. But the idea with yeah, yeah. and the Lovecraftian thing is, and this I think we've these this word has come up a few times in this episode, is like that it's unspeakable, that it's unknowable, that it's That's, yeah. That's interesting because it shows, it's like, it's talking about like, uh, maybe like markers or thresholds of pain. You know? Hell yeah. Where it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, we, I, 
I'm, this is a band meeting. We got a new metal album Threshold coming out. I'm, just, I'm, I'm giving you guys uh, album titles here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, you know, Axe Murderer stuff is, you know, is a certain kind of level of pain that like, yeah, it freaks us out, freaks us out. But we've sort of, that genre has washed over us enough where then you move into these like other zones, maybe it's like, the pain of like psychic pain is mm-hmm. is kind of harder. It's harder to to resolve, mm-hmm. you know. And then you get like spiritual pain or something that's kind of like psychic, but it's a little bit beyond, even more so, you know. And it's just like it's like out there and and kind of terrifying. I think that's. I mean, yeah, like because we've you guys have both mentioned this thing of you know that yeah something like the Blair Witch is more uh, grounded in the body type experience of horror and that this is more spiritual or cosmic or something like that, that I got to stop drinking carbonated drinks when we do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but that like, okay. So the Blair Witch Project, if, if I'm, if I'm, I'm 13 year old me or whatever watching that movie and I'm like, okay, so basically just don't go to that forest in Maryland and you're cool. Like, like yeah. if, mm-hmm. if I believe it, Oh shit, the Blair yeah. Witch is, is a real documentary. This really happened. And it was cause of the witch. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I live 3,000 miles away from Maryland, so I'm good. Right, I'm okay. Yeah, I don't have to worry about the Blair Witch, right? <laughs> yeah, and the same thing. Like, if if there's the murderer escaped and is in your neighborhood, it's like, well, you could just move, you know, or something like that. There's a feeling mm-hmm. that, like, it's contained. And this is something mm-hmm. that you find in, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of a, pre, a pre-Lovecraft era in horror is, like, the house is haunted. So if you live in that house sucks to suck but if you don't live in that house you know <laughs> you're cool your house my house isn't haunted it's just this mm-hmm. this guy's house and it's like lovecraft opened like blew away all the borders and was like no the whole the whole universe is haunted mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah perhaps yeah. on a time scale yeah, on right. a time scale that like humans can't even understand right exactly like yeah. there is no escape there yeah. is no this yeah. entire the entire universe is a haunted house. I think that's a coil song. Um, that's that's another signal. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's like that idea that there is no escape from it. And so that if, you know, the, yeah. the curse in Drag Me to Hell is like, well, just don't be that lady, I guess. Yeah. The curse in Norway is like, apparently everyone is cursed. <laughs> Mm, it seems yeah. like it. Like, it, yeah, it, it certainly doesn't seem like any of those. Like when you when you name like kind of the the victims that you know, let's call them that from this movie. Like when we were talking about like whether there's a pattern to you know how they die or why they die, right? It's like not even clear that there's anything anybody can do to like prevent getting impacted by the curse. I mean, it's just you know, it's just like. It's the way it is. It's one of the many curses in the world, and wo- you know, woe, woe to you if you happen to get it. You know, yeah. It's like we're walking in a minefield. Totally. Yeah. 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 So I mean, and and maybe in a way that's kind of part of why it's so unsettling. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, w- you know, who knows how spiritually safe we are, right, on a day to day basis. Well, and if you look at like how the different people in the movie handle this we basically the idea is that we're all oblivious to the minefield that we're walking through constantly 
and that then some of us just get blown up by, oh, fuck, stepped on a mine. Yeah. Well, that was going to happen. We're in a minefield. The one person who sees it clearly is Mr. Horry, and we don't want to be Mr. Horry. Mm-hmm. Like, that's right. not like a cool... Like, oh, just just be him and you'll be fine. It's like, yeah. no, he's insane. He looks like he's in constant yeah. pain because he's yeah. he sees the minefield as he's seen so many people explode. He's all whatever it is in this in this metaphor. Yeah. He's like, that's not a role model for how to deal with the minefield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's there's one thing I wanna to to talk about because it was like really cool um is it reminded me of silent hill and I, it's like silent hill three so it came that silent hill three i think came out in 2003 so two years before this but very soon um after very close together um but the one when kobayashi goes to interview kano's mom after the television show kana's mom after the television show where she had you know the psychic made the water materialize and stuff like that. He's interviewing the mom, and then there's these, like, footstep sounds that's happening. Um, and I was like, what is, the, why Why put that in, you know, other than it's been kind of creepy? Uh, and it reminded me of some, like, audio work that I think Andrew actually showed me uh, in Silent Hill, where you're just walking through a room, and if you get into this one particular room, it just sounds like people stomping on the floor above you mm. for no reason. And this happens in Silent Hill a lot for no reason. Like you'll go into a room and some weird sound will happen, and then it's never explained. Uh, but it's just there to kind of fuck with you. Yeah. Um, and that was happening here. But then, I mean, later on in the movie, then the actresses, she starts to hear the, the kind of like a thumping sound. Um, so I was like, oh, maybe it's it ties into that. Mm. Um, but it did have this kind of like, it was a weird effect, especially at the beginning when they were, he was just interviewing the mom. And then there was just this really clear sound effect going on, but which was totally disconnected. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Huh. Yeah, that is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the The whole movie has this kind of, Japanese, well, obviously, because it was Japanese <laughs> in 2005, so it's an appropriate statement. But it reminds me of those other types of films, the, even not even found footage films, but like, you know, The Ring and, you like know, Pulse and Cure, like you said, Case. Pulse and, and Cure. Uh, yeah, all of those kind of um, those films that came out around this time in the aughts have this similar kind of vibe to them and this one very much has that vibe but just in the found film that kind of like dread kind of thing yeah i was like yeah dread but also like pacing Mm. particularly like uh uh you know like pulse and cure which is like cure is probably like one of my top five movies ever i fucking love that oh yeah but the pace it's incredible it's incredible yeah um but the pacing it's always like pacing is really quiet you know? Yeah, and kind of deli- and deliberate, kind of, and I mean, not necessarily yeah. slow, but certainly not fast. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, super meditative. And this movie too, like, it's it's interesting to see because I was also trying to figure out, like, because you know, Japan has a lot of vertical housing. <laughs> you know, probably like especially around cities. I'm maybe it's mostly Tokyo, but like, actually, I don't know where this one is set. Mm. Like the city, is it? I want to say it's it's the suburbs of Tokyo. 
I think that okay. I think that somewhere it it does like in one of the subtitle uh, or the um like shot establishing yeah. title things it says Tokyo but it's clearly okay. like suburbs yeah. um when you see what yeah. sort of wider yeah. shots it's yeah but then you have like Kano's Kana Kana's house it, like is an apartment building in this like mega structure kind of thing and it's very simple and this was just probably Japanese culture in this time too. Um, I don't know how it's evolved since then, but like very simple, kind of like simple muted colors, muted woods, you know, natural woods and stuff. It's always got this very calm effect. Um, and those these movies have that. Mm. Um, yeah, and the, plus the technology, the early, you know, aughts technology mixed with that stuff kind of gives it this sort of quiet meditative effect for me. That is a good point that there are, I, I never find, I never find, um, well, at least, yeah, with all the good early to late 90s and early 2000s Japanese horror movies that we've been talking about here, I'm, I, of course there are bad ones. Um, but at least when we're talking about the good ones, they're not, even when they're very, they are scary and unsettling and disturbing and full of dread and everything, they're not taxing to watch. Mm. They're in the way that, you know, say something that is just very loud can be taxing oh, yeah. where you're like, I'm not even sure if I'm scared or if I'm just startled. If I'm just mm-hmm. like, I mean, that's the like the thing with a jump scare is that it's not not necessarily even a scare. It's just being startled. It's just, yeah. Ah! <laughs> you know, if I, <laughs> yeah, that's not, yeah. there's nothing dreadful about that. It's just like something very loud and whatever happens. So you watch 90 minutes of loud noises and strobing, Mm-hmm. in your face things and it's mm-hmm. it's very taxing it's very draining it's and i think sometimes it can be easy to confuse um feelings of horror with just being emotionally drained mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and these movies do not you know yeah the i mean certainly the koji shiraishi movies we're talking about the um kiyoshi kurosawa movies we're talking about the i forget the name of the guy who made the ring but you know uh bunch of these people, they are not draining movies and yet they are thoroughly dreadful. Mm-hmm. Mm. In the sense of being full of dread. They're they're very good movies, but... Yeah, there's yeah. definitely more of a psychological element at play than, like you say, because I feel like even in the kind of like, um, you know, more successful, let's say, American style, you know, lots of jump scare movies that's often balanced out, you know, by at least in horror films that that, you know, people uh choose to kind of focus a lot of attention on. Right. Um mm. so it's uh, and I do think it's kind of interesting going to these movies that like are really mostly about vibes and like kind of fucking with you, you know, while you're experiencing the vibes. As opposed to, you know, startling you, um, mm-hmm. right? I mean, sometimes I think, you know, the jump scare movies are really like thrillers. They just happen to be in like a kind of horror context. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right that that's it. It there's sort of a feeling of that <clears throat> they're like that. Sometimes they're they're really one-sided action movies. Mm-hmm. Totally. If you, I'm thinking about, say, like, you know, you got Predator and you're like, okay, so the whole thing is that, you know, Arnold is equally matched to the Predator. You know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, oh God, how am I forgetting the guy, the guy's fucking name? Jesse? 
Jesse Ventura. In Predator? Yeah. Yeah, maybe, oh, maybe Jesse yeah. Ventura, Carl Weathers, or mm-hmm. Shane Black, or whatever. They're no match for the Predator, but if very quickly we get, okay, Arnold is. So mm-hmm. the Predator's going to do this, and Arnold's going to do that. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. the classic action movie thing, is the good guy and the bad guy, James Bond and Blofeld, or you know whatever, things like that. You've got kind of an equal footing thing. With the good with the good guy always being a okay, but I'm one foot further, you know, one foot better than what is what am I talking about? Um, but in in sort of your you know your jump scary yeah very American style sort of uh, emotionally cheap horror movies it it, it is like this is just a one sided action thing where the villain is capable of the villain kicks ass and everybody else just gets their ass kicked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I realize when I'm describing that, that that's, that's also the case with say the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which is great. Um, that it's, it's like Predator in the sense of, you know, none of these teens are a match for Freddy until, you know, the last girl figures out how to, you know, kick Freddy's ass. And so it's like, well, maybe some of what we're, what we're identifying is just that, you know, the 21st century the American film industry in the 21st century gave us an enormous amount of very lazy and very bad horror movies. <laughs> um, totally. And that, you know, you can fit into whatever genre, whatever subgenre, you can totally follow the rules of that. And as, if, if you're good at it, then you will make a good movie. And if you're, that the bad movies are just bad. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> That's where my articulateness evades me. I just say the conclusion of this episode is that good movies are good. And bad movies are bad. <laughs> bad movies are bad. I mean, if you if you made t-shirts that said that, I'd buy one. Yeah. I mean, we could start making Give merch. Give people what they want. Yeah, make, make merch. <laughs> That's our, our That's show bad, shirt. Actually. That's, yeah. That's There's yeah. one of the shirt. One of the shirts can be about Autecker, and then the other one can be, can be that quote that you just mentioned. We could just sell... Like Autecker shirts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Just, just uh, I could just say this is an Autecker shirt. Yeah. Let's <laughs> see if we finally get sued for something. But there you go. <laughs> yeah. Let us let us know uh, if you're listening to this. If you would like <laughs> us to make you a bootleg Autecker t-shirt. Um, I'm really excited. We're, pro- we're probably at a good ending point, especially because Google Meet is going to kick us off again in in 12 minutes. Yeah. So I. I will say nice. thank you to Casey. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks so much for suggesting this movie. Like I said earlier, um, I was totally unfamiliar, and I really enjoyed it. Hell yeah, yeah! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah. Of do you do you have anything you would like to uh, promote? <laughs> anything you would like? That seems to be a thing that guests on podcasts get to do. Is would would you like to tell the world about something you're doing or something they should look at of yours? Uh, yeah. Uh, I have a little record label project that I've been doing called A Wave Press that uh, people should check out. Uh, there's also a website called experimentalmusicyearbook.com that has a lot of stuff. Uh, from people that uh, we all know from Los Angeles and elsewhere. And other than that, working on a lot of new stuff, so hopefully there will be more new things in the future. Amazing. I'll, I'll put those links and everything in the show notes for people. Um, Sweet. Thank you. And uh, 
And yeah, also uh, really enjoy this here podcast. So thanks for having me on, y'all. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> hope hope yeah, you had a good time. I did. This has been the Modern Rubbish Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Modern Rubbish Podcast, and you can find show notes, links, and more at modernrubbish.ca. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a five-star rating. And feel free to reach out to us via email at modernrubbishpodcast at gmail.com. 